Hi, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the PR Masters podcast series. I'm Art Stevens, your host, and I'm also managing partner of the Stevens Group, which is a leading facilitator of mergers and acquisitions in the PR and digital interactive space. The PR Masters podcast honors living legends who, in our profession, have really made a mark in the world of public relations. And we really have a very special guest today, somebody I've, whose career that I followed for many, many years, and he has risen to among the top ranks of PR agency leaders. And he is Aaron Quitkin. Now, Aaron is founder and CEO of Profit, which is an AI-driven PR SaaS platform backed by NBC Ventures. And he's also the founder and chairman of KWT Global, which is a very successful public relations firm. And we'll talk more about both in just a few moments. But Aaron is a proud George Washington University alum, and he serves on their School of Media and Public Affairs Advisory Committee. And he's also president-elect of PRSA New York, a position that I've held, Aaron, by the way, <laughs> at one time in my illustrious career. Uh, and I'm glad that you're doing it. It's a great organization. He's also involved with the International Communications Consultancy Organization, ECO, which I'm also familiar with. And he's a former board member of the PR Council and a former adjunct professor of NYU. Uh, Aaron has written for Forbes. He's written for a number of publications. He's got deep experience in marketing, technology, brand strategy, reputation management, crisis management, and purpose-driven marketing. And as an endurance sports enthusiast, he also puts social impact at the center of everything he does personally and professionally. And we're going to learn a little bit more about that as well. So, Aaron Quicken, welcome to the PR Masters podcast series. Well, Art, it's great to be here. It's great to connect. I know we've known each other for about three decades. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's really a pleasure uh, to be on your show. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for joining us today. Um, so let's start by talking about your new venture with NDC, which is Profit, and that's a capital P and a capital R and small small letters for Profit. So you're a guy who's always seemed to be ahead of his time, Aaron, which is why Profit sounds very exciting. Tell us about it. Well, um, I appreciate that, and thank you again for the very warm and um, welcoming uh, introduction. So, yeah, I mean, I've spent about the last year and a half or so building uh, profit, um, and basically what we're doing is not so different from what the publishing industry um, is doing for books as well as the film industry is doing for movies, where they look back at past uh, success um, of different genres and apply natural language processing and machine learning to uh, scripts that they're getting to see whether or not they have uh, potential in the future. So um, if you draw that analogy then to what we do as PR professionals and being at the risk of being overly reductive um, around what we do, but you know, I've been doing this for 30 years and one thing hasn't changed, which is we don't really know for sure or at all using data whether or not a reporter is going to be interested in our story. So you know, taking a page from those two industries I just mentioned, what if we look back at past coverage, uh, use machine learning and natural language processing it's a form of artificial intelligence to then predict um, whether or not a reporter would be interested in your pitch or your press release. And that's basically what Profit does. Um, you know, we, uh, you upload your pitch or your press release. We ingest millions and millions of stories every day. We're um, indexing them, analyzing them, um, and then we're basically mapping that content against the content that you're proposing 
to then tell you whether or not a certain set of reporters or outlets will be interested. And if they are interested, what type of sentiment their story might have, and then what the spread could be in terms of the viral nature of a story, whether it goes into syndicate or whether it's a freelancer, whether or not other media want to pick up that reporter's story. And I think um, what's interesting about what we're doing, of course I'm biased when I say that, is you know our industry has gotten a little lazy and it, it wasn't purposeful. It was just the way our workflows evolved, right? So our, you can appreciate that when I got into this business three decades ago, um, you know, there was no fax machine actually uh, that we were using. We were, we were just, you know, having press release stuffing parties. We would, we would print out a press release, stuff it in an envelope, send it, you know, we'd have our own little postage machines and pitney bows. We'd, wait, we'd send it out in the mail, wait two days, and then pick up the phone and actually have conversations with reporters and pitch them. We would also take reporters out. We would have relationships with them, I'd, you know, have three lunches a day. We'd have drinks. I'd have breakfast. I mean, it was very relationship-based. And it's not to say that relationships don't matter, but I do think that they're eroding. I think that the media landscape, as you know, has changed quite a bit. So knowing that relationships are more commoditized and more transactional, knowing that our young people, especially who are on the front lines of pitching, have become accustomed to downloading lists from media database companies blindly, just because that database company says such and such reporters covering, I don't know, personal finance or fintech or, or beauty, it doesn't mean they're interested in your pitch. And oftentimes, either with clients or in-house, you have higher-ups who think that they know a good story, and most think that they're more interesting than they really are. And all we have to contemplate the, the press strategy is our experience, our gut, and our instinct. And that sometimes isn't enough, especially in crisis situations, right? When you're arguing with a lawyer or a general counsel, and you say, well, is that legal advice where you're tinkering and editing my statement, my holding statement? Or is that comms advice? And they're like, well, it's not legal advice. And then you can then say, okay, well, this is based on my experience. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to have data to support a pitch strategy, either reinforcing the fact that that pitch is potent, could have legs in the market, could get interest, or to say that, you know what, why don't I test this um, and um, I'll show you uh, that it actually doesn't have a whole lot of interest unless you make a few changes. So what Profit really does is it gives us an opportunity to test the pitch and to change it and to iterate privately in a virtual safe cloud. It's like pitching in the cloud before you go to market. It frees up time. Um, it will upskill junior employees. And what I'm doing is I'm basically automating all the reading and research that young people should be doing, but they're really not when it comes to the pitching process because that art um, is no longer there and it's been replaced by faux science, which is downloading of these analog lists. So what I'm trying to do is bring art and science together and using AI to do so to make us more performative as a, as a, as a profession. Well, so there you were, Aaron, running you know, KWT Global, a highly successful public relations firm. Uh, you know, you had your, your original firm. You know, had uh, was it's part of uh, NBC. Uh, we'll get to NBC in a little while. Um, where did you come up with the idea of a profit? You know, uh, running a very successful and busy public relations firm. So I love that question. So I've been with NBC Partners since 2010 uh, when they bought my agency, which was once called Quitkin. Um, and um, something pretty amazing happened. It was, it was really a pivotal moment for us. About almost exactly two years ago, a man named Mark Penn, who I know that you've interviewed and you know quite well, um, yes. came to, um, to join MDC Partners as our chairman and our CEO, as, as well as an investor, having built a very successful 
what I'd say alternative entrepreneurial holding company called Stagwell Group. And uh, when he came in, just within a few months, he said to all the agency leaders at, um, at MDC, hey, you know, we're going to do like this mini Shark Tank competition, for lack of a better word, but everybody knows what Shark Tank is. And I want you guys to submit in 500 words or less an idea that sits at the intersection of marketing and technology. It could be a product or a company. And um, the, the, the one goal here is it needs to be transformative, um, and it needs, to, it needs to be something that we can build and bring to the market within a year or 18, a year or 18 months. And um, I competed. I submitted this idea called Project Taylor. If you're a Billions fan, it was after um, the algo trader named Taylor, whom I love, um, who like sees around corners, right? I called it Project Taylor. It ended up becoming Profit. And, you know, we won. And uh, MDC then put some operating budget behind it. We partnered with Stagwell Technologies, um, which is the tech division of Stagwell. And you know, keep in mind that Stagwell uh, was in part uh, funded by Steve Ballmer, former CEO of Microsoft. Mark spent time as chief strategy officer at Microsoft. So you know, I knew that we had the world's leading developers um, at our disposal and at the ready to build this build this product. And I think what I didn't know at the time was that I was actually pitching not just for this idea, but also potentially the next chapter in my career. And um, I do think that the industry right now is at a reckoning moment. Uh, when it comes to um, understanding that intersection between art and science and, and technology and how we use it to become more performative. And, um, you know, COVID-19 definitely put us back about a few months. We did a soft launch in October. Um, we, did the, we started selling in January. We have about 20 users on the platform right now, which is pretty amazing. Um, you know, we use the summer for beta testing. And, you know, at the same time, Mark um, gave me kind of inspiration and license and funding to help launch this. He also completely turned around and transformed MDC Partners. And now, as you know, and our listeners probably know, there's a uh, pending merger between MDC and Stagwell, which I think will make us one of the most powerful holding companies in the world that really understands the intersectionality between technology and talent. And for me to do this right, Mark and I both agreed that I would spend maybe about 25 hours a month on the agency stuff, and that's really just me working with some existing clients that I'm close with. Because I love the tradecraft. I love what we do. I'll never, ever get away from the tradecraft. At the same time, in order to build and scale profit and continue to um, focus on the product roadmap and to make it more than just what it's doing right now, which is still pretty phenomenal, um, I need to spend the majority of my time um, in that business. That's an amazing story, you know, and the fact that, you know, Mark uh, obviously uh, – lay down what, what you would call this internal competition to come up with state-of-the-art ideas, and here it is. It's changed your career totally. Um, um, you must be very excited about, uh, about this since you guys came up with the idea. Uh, how, how far along are you with the profit at this point? Uh, very far along. Um, so like I said earlier, you know, we have about 20 users on the platform, so it's totally, you know, at first it was how do you get to that minimal viable product, um, you know, in the tech world they call it the MVP, and we're way past that now. Um, we've got some very large brands, very notable companies um, using the product um, and seeing a lot of success with it. Um, and, um, you know, right now, um, you know, we have a, a sales team, um, I use Stagwell Tech as my developer, so they're an extension of us, so it's kind of inside or an affiliated party. And then I use my agency as our marketing arm, um, you know, to do our marketing and our PR and whatnot. 
So, uh, and we're about to launch a certification program so that younger people can get trained on the platform. It's super easy to use. It's um, the interface. I think is very much uh, is very intuitive. You know, it's interesting when you build a platform um, as a user versus as a developer. Um, it's a very different um, you know use case, right? So this platform is built by and for PR people. So because I love the tradecraft and because I contribute to Forbes and the drumming of my own podcast, I also know what it's like to get uh, pretty crappy pitches. I get about 100 pitches a week, which are pretty bad. And, you know, the question I often get is, how do reporters feel about this? Because, you know, one, one thought might be, well, do they feel like you're front-running them, like you're trying to get out ahead of them or manipulate them? And the answer is no. Reporters love this. Um, because if they can get fewer pitches that are better and they're spot on and relevant to what they actually do and write, then everybody ha everybody's happy. I think it's a it's um, a huge be a mutual benefit for the entire ecosystem. Isn't it incredible where, where PR has gone in like just the past five to ten years alone? You know, uh, you know, you and I obviously come out of an era, you know, that 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 even uh, predated uh, fax machines and. And uh, and other tools that we have since come to use, but look where we are now. You know, marketing communications has taken just an extraordinary turn, and it's, it's increased the value of uh, public relations. Uh, what's your sense about where you feel you know that the agency business is going, and and what it needs to do uh, going forward? Well, and this is going to be a little bit of a controversial statement, but I've been saying for some time now that. Um, agencies, I don't think, will have um, specialist kind of monikers um, at the at the front of the house, right? So it's not going to be like, oh, KWT is a PR agency. I mean, we're very much you consider KWT. We consider ourselves, you know, a brand marketing marketing communications agency, where we're born of PR, which means that we understand authentic narrative and storytelling. I think though, you're just going to have agency, and agency is going to have to be content and digital first, and I, I think that's what you're seeing in terms of transformation. And you know, again, uh, to quote Mark, you know, um, strategy um, is basically technology and creativity combined, and um, and I think that's the future. I think it's the future for for all of us. The two things that I feel so so confident about, and um, I think help me. Um, really double down on the future of our industry and um, and how powerful and important the industry is to the future of commerce as well as the nonprofit world, which is very important to me personally. Is one, um, you know, we did not cede ground to the old traditional ad agency when it comes to uh, social media. When social media became so important and to the fore, um, if you recall, our ad agencies tried to bury that inside of the creative shops and these creatives would try to run social and they realized, oh, actually they're not really prepared or qualified to do that because they had very self-serving commercial messages. They didn't understand the notion, the, 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 the core principle behind social media and that you have to go where people are, you have to be organic and authentic and they, they didn't get that and it blew up. And so therefore, most folks who have backgrounds in PR and strategic comms uh, were able to lead that. And then the second major thing that's happened recently is this concept of ESG, which is not new, but has been given renewed life, especially and sadly over the last year because of COVID and because of the murder of George Floyd. You know, social purpose, brand purpose, and I'm almost up to 100 podcasts now, episodes of my podcast, which was launched a couple of years ago. Um, 
that is and should be at the core and the heart of every brand, connecting a brand's values to figuring out how they can impact communities, especially people and communities that have been marginalized and, um, and showing, really shining a light where there's been darkness. Those two things, um, or three things, which social media and now um, performative technology, which is what I would qualify profit as, and then ESG, those three things over the last, let's say, five, six years have been more impactful to our future than anything else in the last 10, 20 years. Um, and I feel really good about that because this is our moment, and, and I think that we are in the driver's seat. Um, and let's not lose that moment. Let's not be afraid of technology um, or performative technologies. Let's lean into it and understand what that intersection is, again, between art and science. How interesting that is, really. Um, I don't think you're outrageous at all. <laughs> uh, Aaron, I, I want to change the subject for a moment. Uh, you know, given how far you have come personally and professionally, you know, in the world of public relations, uh, take us back a few years. I'm, I'm always interested in how our, our guests on the uh, PR Masters podcast series uh, originally got into public relations. Uh, some got in, you know, sure, uh, by accident. Others got in. You know, out of journalism, uh, how did you get into public relations? Well, I think you'll like this story because you'll recognize a few names. Um, so I originally wanted to be a prosecutor, a federal prosecutor. Um, so, you know, I, I know you mentioned and I appreciate the shout-out to George Washington University. Um, I had an incredible undergraduate experience there. It was transformative for me. And this is, I mean, the school's even... It's a thousand times better now than it was, you know, in 1992 when I graduated. But um, so I worked in a couple law firms. I realized this is not where I want to be, even though the law is interesting to me. And I remember going to the alumni office um, at GW, and they had this huge book, this huge binder. And it was basically a binder full of internship opportunities. And the first one I came across, and I think I was 19 years old, um, was United Way of New York City. Um, and um, I got a job in that summer, I think it was the summer of 1990 now that I recall, as an intern, and uh, it was a paid intern, but back then there were no paid internships, but United Way of New York City was kind enough. I grew up in New Jersey, in northern New Jersey, in a town called Tenafly, and I was able to kind of stay at home that summer and live with my mom, commuted into the city by bus, and um, that was a great experience because my first real PR experience was in the nonprofit world. I learned how to write, learned how to pitch. We did a lot of partnerships with like the NFL at the time. Uh, David Dinkins was mayor at the time, um, the first African American mayor, and sadly the only one so far in the history of New York City. Um, so I got to work with him in his office. May he rest in peace. And um, and then shortly after that, um, I got an internship through GW again through that alumni office and the career placement office at Manning, Salvage, and Lee, now MSNL. And I got to work with the great Joe Gleason, a guy named Hal Warner, who was really at the yeah, time, well. yeah, yeah. And, and, and may his memory be a blessing as well, of course. Hal taught me everything I knew about crisis, as did Joe Gleason. And Joe ran that office. There's only like eight people in the office, so I was like some young muffin joining the office. And when you're young um, and you join a small office, you're going to do more things, just because there's less bodies around, and they're going to push you to the point where they're going to give you everything you can take on. And I'm so grateful because I got to work on then the Denny's uh, crisis um, with Flagstar. Um, I worked on 
uh, crisis around violence and video game labeling, which is the reason why you have labels on video games now. Um, you know, I worked uh, for the Meat Association around the issue of E. coli. I worked with hospice. I worked with fertility. All these different trade groups, and it was transformative for me. And I really fell in love with crisis and issues management. So, I learned PR or media relations specifically by um, trying to figure out how do you um, keep a client out of the news, not get them in the news, and or if they are, how do we make sure that it's balanced and it's neutral. And, you know, there's a counter-narrative at least in order to protect stakeholders around that client, that association, or that brand. And then I had to learn, oh, actually, how do I proactively pitch? And after that, um, I had um, the, great, the great pleasure of uh, and the great moment of meeting Bob Feldman. And Bob gave me, you know, when I, when I joined Ketchum in Washington, and uh, Bob gave me um, a tremendous amount of opportunity that I would not have had to work on large brands, including then MCI, which is no longer exists. And, um, and then, you know, my career kind of took off from there. And, you know, one of the things that I always felt was very important and I realized in the agency world that was a mark of success is, one, always raise your hand, um, two, work harder than anybody else, three, you know, be really kind of inquisitive and curious. Curiosity is so important. And four, I think that you rise quickly in the PR world if you can also demonstrate that you can either upsell an existing client and or help with new business and bring in business. And that's what I focus on. I love pitching. I still love pitching. I love I love the uh, the thrill of it. Um, I like the I, I can handle the rejection. It makes me stronger. But I also love the thrill of acceptance and saying, hey, because they're buying you personally as well as the organization that, that you're a part of. And I just had this great kind of um, run with Ketchum and then with Fleischman in New York. And I got to work with Doug Michaelman in New York and uh, Peter Varengia. And we got to work on IBM and eBusiness. And it was just, you know, I, I had worked so long in agencies. I took a small pivot into private equity. Um, you know, early, early on, I had, when I, you know, I graduated in 92, the, the market at the time was not great. Before, uh, in between being an intern at Manning and then being like the receptionist and then an AE through SAE, I took a job um, as a contractor at ICF, um, which uh, at the time nobody knew what it was. Now, of course, everybody knows ICF, but they worked on something called the Green Lights Program, which is now, if you look at any of your appliances in your home, it's called Energy Star. And I had to literally cold call chief financial officers from Fortune 1000 companies and get them to retrofit their lighting um, to save money and save the environment, and in that order, because in order for them to hear the message of save the environment, that duality needs to exist by saying, oh, by the way, you're also going to save on your electric bills. And if, you know, if you're a large company with you know, millions of square feet globally, you are both um, contributing to your bottom line as well as to um, – environmental sustainability, and that program took off. It, to, to date, it is the most successful voluntary uh, energy efficiency environmental program cooperatively between you know, the private sector and the public sector ever um, in history of the U.S. I'm very proud of that. Even though I was only there for like eight, nine months, it was paid the bills, and I got a lot of good experience. And you know, one of the things that's really important for PR people, and just in life in general, to be able to um, – handle rejection, process it, and then get back up again. You know that old adage art where it's like get knocked down seven times, get up eight, right? And that's been my entire career and my life. And I think I owe a lot of that to my mom, single mom, Holocaust survivor, just turned 90 on March 25th. 
Um, and I think that um, she raised me to be resilient and tough and also to take risks and chances because we don't, we're not here that long. We don't walk this earth that long, um, if you really think about it. So you should make the most of it. And the last thing I'll say is um, over the past five, six years, social impact has become very, very important to me um, and um, the agency I had founded. And, you know, we give back um, 10% of retained fees towards client social clauses by way of service um, if a client wow. will allow us to do that or will help them come up with that. And that's our kind of purpose dollars. And I think it's important. Um, I think it's important for so many reasons that we probably don't have time to, to get into. But um, I think making sure that you have kind of social impact at the core of everything you do. Um, you know, anytime I race, I do a lot of, you know, Ironman races and marathons. I always raise money for charity. Um, always for a group or an association or an organization because um, it's bigger than us, right? It's bigger than us. So there's a long answer, so sorry, gonna... but, you know, that's okay. there's a lot there. <laughs> no, that's why you're our guest today, you know, because we want you to uh, expound on your career, your your viewpoints, your life, and so on. Uh, and But you made one move in your life that, of course, I identify with, uh, which kind of changed my life and I suspect changed your life as well, you know. Given all the organizations you worked for, some very fine public relations firms, but at some crucial point, you decided to start your own agency. Yeah. And that probably changed your life completely because uh, here we are today you know, with KWT uh, and with uh, uh, Profit and uh, all the uh, career achievements you know, that you have uh, uh, brought to yourself. Um, tell us about that move, why you did it, and what it felt like. Uh, great question. So as I, as I answer that, I'm staring at a photocopy of a check for $6,258, $6, to be specific, from Thompson Corp, um, dated December 7, 2005, because that was the first check I got um, when I was on my own. It was for like a, it was like a media training or something. I can't even remember. Um, and it was, um, you know, I remember it was Halloween of that year, 2005. I'd been working for, at the, at the time it was called Euro RCG. Um, my boss at the time named Jim Heakin, who then went on to, um, run gray, um, for a number of years. Um, and uh, he had left and, you know, and now they're called Havas. And, I had a nice run there. It was almost five years as CEO of uh, North America for them, running five or six offices. But at the time, remember, this is you know 16 years ago. They were not really interested in uh, PR. They did not want to um, invest in humans or you know people and or become more acquisitive um, with other agencies. And we were really the tail on the dog. The dog was the ad agency model. And I kept saying, this is broken. This is going to change. And they just they weren't really listening. And, you know, it was an interesting time. I was uh, 34 years old. Um, I had a four-year-old and a one-year-old um, and a sizable mortgage. And I said to my wife, I said, you know, this is like my one shot. Um, I didn't really have a whole lot of paper um, that bound me, believe it or not, um, to um, that organization. And I said, you know, worst case scenario is, look, we're going to go into more debt because I want to build this, is that I just go find a job and become an employee again. And, you know, <laughs> I'm really grateful to my wife at the time. She said, not only am I supportive and I'll, I support you, but uh, she said yes to allowing me to take a second mortgage on our home, which we didn't have a lot of equity in to begin with. Um, you know, I, 
I basically cashed in what might have been at one point some of my bar mitzvah money um, and a couple of bonds. And, and um, remember at the time, there was no cloud. The cloud at the time created rain or, or blocked the sun. There was no cloud, so you had right. servers. I had to personally, you know this, because I had to personally guarantee everything, which is terrifying, computer equipment, you know, a lease, pay in advance six months for a lease. And there was no WeWork. It was just Regis um, or the Shannon building across from Grand Central. And for the first year, the, the goal is survival and begging the bank to clear deposits so you can make payroll. You know, you don't take a salary. Um, my wife also has a financial background, not an accounting background. She learned that very quickly because she's incredibly bright. And she did the books and by, by, uh, by default was also kind of our HR person. And you know, started in my basement, um, and then three months later, in early 2006, we had about six people. I had Jason Schlossberg and Gabrielle Zucker join me, who are former colleagues at the time. They were like, you know, account executives at Havas, um, and they became my partners. And um, it was both a scary and a thrilling moment. Um, and again, I, I, I keep, I hate to keep saying people's names who now no longer with us, but. Jim Abernathy was part of Havas at the time. I think Abernathy McGregor still is. And I met with him before I left. And, you know, God bless that man. He basically said, you need to leave. I can see you've got this passion and this vigor to do something different and to imprint differently in the industry. He's like, it's not going to happen here. And he basically gave me the roadmap of how to escape without with having as minimal litigation as possible. And look, I'll be honest, you know, Havas, I said to them, look, here are all the people that are at risk. Here are the clients that are at risk. It, there's no paper between us, so I'm within my rights, you know, if a client wants to work with me. But I will give you for two years, Art, two years, I will give you 20% of my revenue, That any revenue that comes from a former client that decides they don't want to stay, even though I'll do everything I can to convince them they need to stay with you. And they said no, which is foolish on their part. Instead, um, they knew they had no paper, but instead uh, there was a – a CEO at the time uh, named David Jones, who decided he's going to lawyer up and try and go after me and litigate and litigate. And um, they obviously were unsuccessful. Um, what they did was they went after all of my clients and sent them letters threatening them, which is, I think, really terrible um, and is very unprofessional, especially when you have no legal basis. So um, that was like the first couple of years. And then um, I had the great fortune of meeting Miles. Uh, just a few years in, Jonah Bloom introduced us. And um, I like Miles a lot. Um, you know, like you said before, starting my own agency is transformative. The next major transformation was Miles and joining MDC. Um, that was tremendous. We embedded ourselves in a creative agency at the time. It was called Kirschenbaum, Bond, Seneca, and Partners. And then we started competing with each other. So we extricated ourselves but still stayed part of MDC. And then, um, you know, after that, the next transformative moment in my career was having Mark Penn join MDC and not only um, turn around the company and how it operates, um, but give it a vision, but also um, give us all kind of, you know, oxygen to be able to find our entrepreneurial selves in, in, in the way that I have with profit. So um, it's, been, it's been tremendous, um, and I wouldn't have changed a thing, um, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, and one of the things I think I'm most proud of, and I'm sure you can appreciate this, Art, is I look back at the hundreds of people that have come through KWT or Quitkin over the years, and so many of them have gone on to be so successful in their own right in other ways, where I've known them since they're like 21, 22 years old, and 
there's no greater gift in the world. It's better than even help. It's better than even serving a client is just in helping to accelerate someone's professional goals and their career and helping to um, give life to their ambitions. And that, to me, is the greatest kind of mutual gift that we could all have when we're running organizations, whether they're our own organizations or we're running organizations for others. So you're on to an interesting subject, um, you know, because, you know, uh, I empathize with everything you said because, uh, you know, I, I obviously went through all of those feelings uh, when I started my own agency uh, a number of years ago uh, and never looked back, never regretted it. So uh, it takes a little bit of courage, chutzpah, right? Yes. Uh, yes. And a variety of, 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 of other adjectives, you know, to, to make that kind of a move. What advice would you give to uh, somebody who is thinking about starting his or her own agency? Um, what What do you feel it takes to do that, and what skills do, do you do you believe that uh, anyone contemplating starting an agency you know must have? Oh, great questions. Um, I think that you have to believe in yourself, and I know that sounds very silly, um, but you have to believe in yourself. I also think that um, you know. You, you have to know that um, you're on the edge of a cliff, but there's people behind you, and they want to see you succeed. And I think that what you need to do first is talk to people that you trust um, and that you respect to get their advice. So for me, you know, I had spoken with and met with Jim Abernathy, Bob Feldman, Bill Heyman, David Gallagher, who's you know was Ketchum now, you know, is Omnicom, Michael Kempner. Um, you know, um, Mikofsky. And, you know, these are all people that I respected for, for various reasons. And um, not only did they encourage me, but they also gave me a couple, like, tidbits here and there. Um, and the other thing is, I think what's really important is you have to have something that's unique about you. Like, when I started the agency, we were very values-based, very family-oriented, very about work, a lot about work-life balance, and then we kind of then focused on design thinking, then we focused on purpose and brand purpose, and then we focused on technology. You have to have something about you um, that is unique and different, um, and you also have to have the stomach for it, and um, you have to be willing. You have to be willing, and I know you can appreciate this, Art. You have to be willing at least in the first two years to know that you're going to be working a minimum of 60 hours a week, if not more. Um, and you're going to have to probably take on a few clients at first that you ordinarily might not be proud of. And I don't mean, I don't mean proud of in terms of ethics because you should always obviously only present companies that align with your moral compass. What I mean is they might be smaller than you want them to be. They might be not as well known, um, and that's okay because you need cash flow and you need use cases. Um, and, and then the other thing is you have to think who you're going to partner with. You know, I was very lucky in that there's two people at the time who, while they lacked the experience of being very senior people in organizations, um, they had the tradecraft and uh, they had an incredible potential. And I knew they could be senior members of my team and partners in my, in, in my journey. And I think that's also, you know, incredibly important. And you have to think about what your end game is. I always knew that I would probably sell but I didn't want a traditional sale, which is why I liked MDC's model, because they buy a majority, but not more than 60%, sometimes 51%, so that you are, uh, you have, there's a, again, there's a mutuality to success. 
um, and you really are partners that way versus kind of like a 80-20 deal where you have an earn out over, over a couple of years. Those tend to not work quite as well. So I always knew that it would be a little lonely um, without being part of a larger network because I like being part of a larger network. I like being collaborative and learning. Um, and I knew that within four or five years we would do some deal with somebody. Um, so I, I did have a plan. You need to have a short-term plan and a long-term plan. Um, but you know you have to have a stomach for it. It's not for everybody, um, you know. And you also have to be willing to put yourself out there. You know, you can be the you can be the person in the ring, or you can be on the outside being critical. I spent my entire life being in the ring, and I would have it no other way. Even if I get knocked out, that's okay, because I'd rather get punched in the face than not have the opportunity to get into the fight to begin with. Well put, well put, Aaron. I got two more questions for you. Sure. And then I'm going to let you go run profit. <laughs> or, or, or by the same token, be a prophet, running prophet. <laughs> uh, first of all, how do you characterize yourself? What do you like? Uh, how do you work? What's your management style? How, how would you define who you are and how you come across to people? Um, I probably come across as a little intense, probably a bit much, um, more of a fireball, um, demanding, always on. Um, and um, pushing, pushing the envelope. I'm trying to see around corners, and I'm trying to make all of us our, our, our best selves. Um, that, you know, is double-edged. Um, I'm not for everybody. I can be a little impatient. I know that for sure. Um, and um, at the end of the day, though, I'm really trying to push people, you know, to be their best. I think the thing I've had to work on over my 50 years is just being, uh, taking a beat, um, you know, being a little less judgmental, giving people an opportunity um, to prove themselves. You know, um, some of us sometimes, you know, we don't suffer fools. Um, and I think that can be a little bit of a challenge. Um, and, I, and, and I also think that our industry sometimes, um, you know, falls to like the lowest common denominator, which is publicity. And I think we're better than that. I think that that is just one of so many different um, important elements of who we are and, and, and what we do. Interesting. So my final question, Aaron, and, and uh, gosh, I thank you so much. This was really very enlightening, informative, and and uh, and and, and uh, collegial at the same time. Um, what's ahead? What's ahead for Aaron Quitkin? You know, you've got profit right now. You've, uh, the industry is changing. Uh, you are obviously continually entrepreneurial. Um, you're inventive, creative, innovative. Um, where do you see yourself in the next 10 to 20 years? Well, um, I had a podcast guest not long ago. In fact, it might have been the head of Nat Geo Partners. I can't remember now, but he had said, um, you know, you, you spend your career, your life, you know, first you learn, then you earn, and then you return. So I'm still in the earning side of my career. I feel like I'm in my prime now, actually. I'm still learning, too, because things um, have been evolving very quickly. Um, ultimately, though, um, I would like to help force um, a greater level of efficiency and performance in our industry through technology and redefining and revolutionizing the tech stack that PR people use and making sure that um, you know, it helps us continue to play an important role um, uh, within senior ranks within organizations and also become more performative. But ultimately after that, you know, I'd like to run a large global nonprofit. I'd like to get into the nonprofit world. And one of the things I learned from my recent experience 
being president of my temple, uh, is that you know our you and I don't realize how much skill we have that can be put to great use um, for other causes because we it's muscle memory we do it every day and communications is the fuel and the lifeblood of any organization it doesn't matter if you work in a lab or you're running a cryptocurrency firm without communications and effective communications you're nothing. And I think that we all, especially as communicators, are probably best positioned to be able to play bigger roles when it comes to social impact and uh, the nonprofit world and serving communities that are living in the margin and people who are living in the margin. And that's ultimately what I'd like to do. That's probably in 10 years um, or maybe sooner. But that's something that I'm very, very focused on and interested in. And sadly, there's always going to be that need. Um, double sadly, um, not enough of us are thinking about that as a, as a kind of a – either the last chapter or an end cap on uh, our careers. Well, Aaron, on a, on a personal note, I, I'd like to thank you for agreeing to, to be president-elect of uh, PRSA New York. Um, I have been involved with the chapter, as you probably know, for, for many years in a variety of capacities, including uh, past president, uh, having run Big Apples, and a lot of things you're going to be getting into uh, next year. So I thank you. I think the chapter is great, and it should it certainly needs somebody like you. So thank you for volunteering to do that. Well, well, thank you, Art. I, th I think that you know making sure that we are um, champions for our industry and our people is something that's incredibly important to me. And you know I love working with kind of frenemies, right? I love working with other agencies that I compete with because at the end of the day we're all friends, and we should be. It's just business. But there's some incredible people and incredible talent. Um, in the industry, and I'm very excited to uh, have joined the board of PRSA New York, but also become its president um, next year. So um, I thank you for that. And again, those roles, again, even if it's <laughs> president of my temple, they, they act. They tend to be even more rewarding than the day job that pays you, um, because it, 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 you're, you're, you really are making an impact in a different way. Well, Aaron. I want to thank you on behalf of our listeners for joining us today. You are truly a PR master. Uh, you have been most enlightening, and uh, I wish you continued success. And I do know our paths will cross, and if there's any way I can help you with uh, the work you will be doing for uh, PRSA New York, just, just, just count on me, okay? Thank you, Art, and thank you for everything you've done for our business um, and your listeners and our industry because uh, it's people like you that actually – um, give us all a lot of hope and inspiration, you know, for our individual and our collective futures. For our, so I appreciate that and everything that you do. Well, Aaron, thanks for joining us. And I'd like to thank all of you today for listening in on another of the Stevens Group PR Masters podcast series. And as I always say on closing, until next time, I'm Mark Stevens, wishing you all the very best.